Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And, uh, well, Jim, we have a special guest today. Funnily enough, I'm off to this part of the world next year for my for my um, uh, new programme. So who have we got, anyway? Well, we've got Mark Johnson, who is former soldier, charity worker, historian, writer, uh, and he's written a book called Caribbean Volunteers at War, The Forgotten Story of the RAF's Tuskegee Airmen. And... You know, it's one of those things, isn't it? You just don't think about it too much that lots of Caribbean citizens volunteered for the RAF and flew with Bomber Command and other other parts of the RAF, and very heroically too, it has to be said. And perhaps there is a perception that sort of Caribbean interaction between the UK and and the Caribbean began with the Windrush rather than was preceded by actual sort of martial involvement in a in, in the war effort. So anyway, so who are we talking to, Jim? Yeah, with Mark Johnson. So Wonderful. Mark, it's great to see you. Thank you. Welcome, Mark. Us. Thanks very much. We're happy to be here. Um, in fact, it's an interesting point you make, um, Al, about the Windrush because a lot of people don't realise that on that famous voyage, there were, I think it's 60 former Caribbean RAF um, servicemen and women returning, oh. to, returning to the UK to live, um, having served already, having served in the UK and, and over Europe, yeah. And had technical training, of course, which made them valuable as, as, as workers. So, absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so the, 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 it isn't, Windrush isn't a sort of year zero moment. It's got, it's got the, the, there's reasons people are coming. And one of the reasons is that they've, they've been to the UK before, They've been trained by the UK. They maybe understand the UK or think they do to an extent, certainly during wartime. So what led you to um, – we're not fans really on the podcast of the forgotten secret of the Second World War. That, <laughs> that, 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 you know, like we're, we're not mad for that. But this is genuinely a thing that is certainly at least to one side, if not completely forgotten. What, what led you to the story? Well, actually, my, my great uncle, my grandmother's brother, um, John Jellicoe Blair, was mm. a flight lieutenant in the RAF. He was one of the volunteers. He joined up in 1941. And he served with Bomber Command with number 102 Ceylon Squadron flying from Pocklington. Right. He did a full tour, 1944 to 45. Wow. And he was a navigator. And he was then selected for the Pathfinder Force. And this is as a, as a black Caribbean airman. Yep. Wow. Uh, he was navigator on the Comet during peacetime. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, yeah, really amazing. And then I, I thought he was the only one. So growing up, I always thought he was the only one. He never talked about it. And I finally persuaded him to do an interview with me in 1997. Yes, because you sat down and talked to him at length, didn't you? That's right, at great length, and recorded it. And then I discovered that he was one of about 490. Yes, I mean, that's yeah. decent numbers, isn't it? Yeah. 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 All volunteers, of course. I mean, volunteers. Everyone, everyone, that's everyone. the air crew. There were about 5,000 ground crew, four to 5,000 who trained at Filey in Yorkshire. Right. And then there were 15,000 um, merchant sailors, about a third of whom were killed. Gosh. I mean, the 15,000 merchant sailors is a huge number, isn't it? And, and I suppose, that, you know, actually, the, the, the number of, of, of Caribbean volunteers generally to who were doing war work was, was quite considerable, wasn't it? I mean, cause there's, there's other ways and the, there was home regiments and there were, um, there was sort of home defense and Island defense and all sorts of things that you could get involved with, with war work. 
That's right. So there were home regiments. In fact, I later served with the modern um, version of the what was then the West India Regiment, which, is, which um, became the Jamaica Defence Force or part of the Jamaica Defence Force. And um, interestingly, uh, some of the British regiments that were stationed in Jamaica and elsewhere during the colonial era were, were pulled back to Europe and were relieved, in a sense, by the local forces that were raised. So, right. so even though you may have been serving in Jamaica, you were still helping the war effort by releasing... Um, it's, it's a little bit controversial because, of course, they were enforcers of colonial power. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. so it's, 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 the, the people would have complex, a complex mix of opinions about this. But, but the reality in terms of logistics and, and, and numbers of, of available personnel is that they were relieving them to serve yeah. in Europe. And Mark, did you say that John Blair was your, your great-uncle or your uncle? My great uncle, my grandmother's brother. My grandmother's and, what would, brother. D- and did he discuss his motivations for volunteering? Yeah, it's one of my first questions. Well, I, 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 I interviewed others as well, but um, he was very clear. So, and I, I asked him the question about, you know, colonialism and how he felt about serving his majesty. And he said he didn't go to serve his majesty. He went to fight Hitler. And the general consensus in the Caribbean in 1940-41 was that if the Nazis defeated Britain the Caribbean would probably return to slavery. I have to remember this is before the Americans had entered the war, so it was Britain stands alone uh, time. And uh, they were terrified of that prospect, and and the volunteers went to fight for the safety and security of their fellow countrymen, um, and they came to Europe for that purpose. Well, to be fair, I think they've had a point. I mean, there is that distinction available to people, I think is quite interesting too, isn't it? Because that's not really on offer in the First World War, is it? The First World War's for king and country rather than fighting the Kaiser. Although fascism has a different texture and everyone everyone knows during the... Th- can see what's coming during the 30s, I expect, in terms of fascism. So to state it like that squarely, is I think that's very interesting, isn't it? It's um, You have that option, I suppose, rather than having to fight for the king. In a way, it's a little like a lot of left-wing people who, you know, have to make their minds up when the Soviets align with the Germans in 1939, isn't it? So who, who are you fighting here? Very much yeah. so. Very much so. And, and you know, you know, fascism is an ideological and existential threat to freedom and democracy. And yeah. freedom and democracy are not perfect, okay, but it's certainly preferable to concentration camps and genocide. Yeah. And and whereas the, the war against the Kaiser is not that. Um it's an imperial conflict between imperial powers and I think a lot less clear cut for for people. Because you have written about p- people flying in the First World War as well. So so Oh there were, there were, yes. What are they fighting for? I mean, uh, uh, what, what's their motivation? Uh, well, I think there's, there's still a sense that, you know, let's, let's put it this way. You know, Mr. Putin is a good example, actually. And I think what's happening in Europe now is a, is a direct parallel. There are Russian tanks in Ukraine. There are no Ukrainian tanks in Russia. Okay? The Kaiser's troops entered Western Europe. Western European armies did not enter Germany. And so even in the absence of an ideological foundation for action, there's still a moral and ethical driver. And those who volunteered in the First World War from the Caribbean, and in one case from North America, Eugene Bullard, volunteered for for those reasons. I think it's important to remember that. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, completely reasonable reasons to go. I mean, the thing is, I think the merchant navy side of this is the is the because we have talked about flyers before, but not, for instance, the battle of the, you know the battle of the Caribbean, which is again, I think, I think, you know, within the battle of the Atlantic picture, I think, a thing that people might not know about Op- Operation Neuland um, uh, in 1942, which is a deliberate German effort and it- and Italian an Axis effort, um, Italian effort to get stuck into what's happening in the Caribbean in terms of oil trade from Venezuela and all that, all that sort of stuff. Um, to tell us a bit about that. 
Yes, yeah, so there were about, I think there were about 20 submarines involved, as you yeah. say, a mix of German and Italian. Um, they were targeting shipping uh, throughout the Caribbean, but primarily the, the route from Venezuela to the east coast of the United States. Yeah. Ships were sunk off the coast of Jamaica. Uh, and as a result of, of ships being randomly attacked, um, there were shortages of food, Christmas parcels weren't delivered. So pe- people in the Caribbean certainly felt the effects of that. Right. Interestingly, there were also um, prisoners taken, submarine crews, as well as other prisoners transferred from the UK who served their war prisoner service or time in, in Jamaica. Wow. And some of them actually returned subsequently and settled there, uh, you know, as prisoners, as prisoners often do. So, so there's a legacy there as well. Really? So there's a, there's a sort of fragment of German, is it German and Italian crews or is it just German? I believe it was both. I've read, of, I've, right. I've heard of both. They were, they were, they were held, some of them were held in Upper Camp and some were held in Newcastle, which is a training depot in the mountains. I mean, that, beat, that beats being in Wales or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very interesting, you know, we look at the, 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 the duration of the, the, the conflict. There were British prisoners escaping, you know, on a regular basis from German camps. Yeah. Um, I don't believe, I believe there was one German who successfully escaped back to Europe during the entire war. <laughs> so, you know, they, it's an interesting um, difference in terms of motivation to get away. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're on Jamaica. Well. Yeah, I'll just hang out here for the duration. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic. But that was, I mean, that's a big encounter though, isn't it? It's it's, it's um, sort of t- 10 German subs and five Italian, isn't it? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, the descent. So, I mean, in a way that actually attacking the oil tankers seems unusually focused and rational for the um, German U-boat effort, doesn't it, Jim? I mean, to, to yeah. actually go for the thing that really matters more than anything else. It's pretty unusual, isn't it? What are the losses of amongst West Indian crews? So so you said, is it 15,000 men serve? So, I'm, I, so to be honest, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at the Merchant Marine side of the story. That was yeah. sort of men- mentioned in passing in the book. But I believe it was in the region of a third. Um, Which is sort of roughly in keeping with the Merchant Marine full stop. I mean, the average, yes. Yeah. You know, because actually the number of, the number of successful convoys is whatever it is over, over 80% without being touched at all. Yeah. Um, And overall shipping losses are something like 1.4% as a fraction of sailings, but as a fraction of numbers, Mm. it's obviously a lot higher. Yeah. Yeah. And Britain loses a quarter of its merchant shipping. In the yeah. Second World War, um, so that, that makes so, sense. So, so the problem is, is that you know you you can do you can do twelve transatlantic convoys without seeing anything, but the thirteenth you might come a cropper, and, yeah. and that's the problem. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, the accumulation effect on on sort of bomber command crews or hmm. you know yeah. crews 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 yeah. trying to get through their first toy. I mean, you might yeah. be able to get through kind of five missions in your B seventeen, no problem. But trying to get through twenty five or thirty later on in the war is, is a bit a bit of a sort of tougher task. Absolutely, and and I mean the German sub- submarine commanders um, celebrated and commented on the fact that uh, when they reached the west coast, sorry, the east coast of the United States, everything was lit up brightly. Yeah. They could navigate by shorelines. Yeah. There were, the ships were lit up. There were no convoys, um, and this and this this would be the time when. Um, when those crews were being were being targeted, yeah. But Mark, tell us about tell us a bit more about your great uncle John Blair. So you're saying he was a, a navigator, I think. So so what was what was his story? I mean, how did he join up? When when did he join up? Why was he? Why did he become a navigator? And what happened to him? Well, he and a couple of others um, that I was able to interview, because obviously many had had passed on by that stage. Uh, he he was very specific. He he was a school teacher. He and his headmistress listened to Churchill's 
will fight them on the beaches um, speech. Amazing. And yeah. he was inspired by that, and he went straight down to the military barracks, the British military barracks, and volunteered at the front gate, uh, ha- having heard that speech. It's, 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 I think it's quite you know, important to note what an inspirational leader and a single speech can do, and it can have a global effect, even, even before the internet existed, and it's even more the case today. Um, so he went down there, he volunteered, he was taken to Canada eventually on a ship. Well, he was taken a ship to the United States and then by train to Canada. He trained at Moncton, uh, where a lot of uh, aircrew trained. And he then arrived in the UK in 1943 and continued his operational training there. But Mark, was his ambition to be a pilot or did he just, did he join as aircrew? His ambition was to serve. So they were, they were tested in fields. He was very good at mathematics. So navigator was, right. was the role assigned. There were pilots. There, there yep. were Spitfire pilots. Yep. In fact, the most famous of all is probably uh, Arthur Wint, yes. who went on to win gold twice at the Olympics in the 100 meters. And he was a Spitfire pilot, and he then uh, qualified as a doctor and returned to Jamaica and worked wow. in medicine. So, you know, what a career. What a life. What a high achiever. <laughs> what a life. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. There's a very good book out by his daughter. I can't, the title escapes me, but um, it's worth Googling. Oh, okay. Well, we'll have a look at that. So, so, he, so he, he gets over to England. He's, he's trained as a navigator. He's obviously good at what he does. And crews up. Any issues of crewing up at all? No. Uh, as you know, they crewed up in great big hangar. Um, so they just pushed everybody in. The pilots walked around and picked their crews. And a Canadian pilot named Ralph Pearson uh, just walked up to my great uncle and picked him out of the, the crowd. I, I don't know what his views were, but it might be that he thought, you know, if a black Jamaican has made it this far, it must be bloody good. So, um, uh, and then that was it. And he had no, I mean, some people had real problems with racism. There's no question about that. And they talked about that. But my great uncle ha- says he, he experienced none. And he stayed in the RAF until 1963. So, gosh, yeah. gosh, amazing! And what about his tours? I mean, did he did you get his log? Have a look at his logbook and all that kind of yes, stuff. Yes, yes. So, so he won the the Distinguished Flying Cross amazing. for his war service. Um, he was involved in a full tour of uh, thirty missions, and God. he flew to all the usual targets. Um, yeah, I've received some hate messages from revisionist um, individuals in 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 certain countries, naming him and his crew and the missions they flew on. The only weapon available at that time was Bomber Command. And yep. if you don't want to be bombed by Bomber Command, then leave us alone. I can't believe you've had hate mail. That's just oh, yes. Oh, yes. so bizarre. I've had hate mail from people in the UK claiming that this whole thing is made up and there were no black air crew. Yeah. There is a strand of people who think this is a hoax, don't they? That's who, right. That's who right. say it's yeah. all a hoax. Well, hopefully there are a very, very small number of people but he's gazetted, you know, uh, his, his DFC is on the record. His photograph is in the, in the newspaper from, from that period. So, And where his experiences of, uh, did he talk about the sorties in the same way that, you know, other crews do? Because what you've got with Bomber Command, obviously the thing is you do have crews from, with people from all over the, all over the dominions and the, and the empire and from everywhere. So, so they were always mixed up yet there seem to have they seem to have sort of adopted this kind of uh emotionally restrained tone certainly where they presented themselves i mean god knows what it's actually like in the plane when it's all going off but but this sort of because we we read a we read a diary that uh, um a listener sent us that was all you know rum do over brayman last night uh a bit choppy uh flat but nothing nothing too much to be concerned about that that very sort of um buttoned down wizard prang sort of way of looking at it is that how he expressed himself talking about stuff had he had he adopted that tone or had he retained his own given the sort of culture mix that was going on well it's quite interesting because he still had a jamaican accent 
Yeah. But he, he'd adopted this RAF lingo. But, uh, you know, I asked him specifically, so because, I, because I'd been in uniform myself, I just did drug enforcement you know, operations, but he, he, we, we, we could relate to each other. And I asked him how it felt. I remember his exact sentence. It was, it was a very, very hard thing to do. I felt like I was walking through mud the first time I walked towards my aircraft for an operation. Mm-hmm. And he also said that he didn't make friends with anyone outside his crew on the squadron. They were just like ghosts passing by. You didn't, you didn't make friends because you knew that many of them would die very soon. And so you avoided the emotional trauma by not talking to mm. them. My God. Mm. That's a, wow. that's the, the idea that they're like, go, they're ghosts already sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Goodness me. You don't expect them to survive. You expect, you, you expect that you'll survive. Yeah. But you don't expect anybody else to survive. His squadron suffered 50% losses, eight aircraft out of 16, I think it was, in the first four weeks of his service. And the squadron was the second most, it was joint second for the highest casualty rate um, from Bomber Command. So that's 102 Squadron. My God. Yeah, oh, that's quite goodness. something, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And when he returned to the um, to the Caribbean, what welcome did people have when they'd been to been to fly for the RAF? So I interviewed my father, I interviewed my dad, because my dad was my dad actually saw him off when, when Uncle John left. My dad was um, because he's quite young, Uncle John, compared to his siblings. Mm. So my dad was probably about seven or eight. And yeah. he saw him off and, and he saw him come back. And he said right. that this was, a, this was a hero. By the way, Uncle John ran for the RAF. He's on the RAF track team. So he's an impressive right. figure physically yeah. as, well as, as well as in terms of his service. And he came back bemedaled, you know, in uniform to Jamaica um, in an era when, you know, prior, prior to this moment, hardly any black person had, be, had worn uniform. Yeah. Um, certainly not as an officer. Uh, and he, you know, went back to his home uh, rural parish, his small village where he, he originated. And you can imagine, you know, this war hero coming home, huge, huge welcome. Um, but later, because what happened, of course, in the, that was obviously 1945, but what happened in the 60s and 70s was that the Black Power movement became very, very um, influential. Yeah. And it became um, unpopular to, to mention your war service. And made, most of the volunteers sort of just hid the fact that they'd served because it wasn't, it wasn't acceptable right. anymore. Right. That's not unlike what happens in Ireland, is it, after the war? Yes. Yeah, very similar. Very similar. And Mark, tell, tell us about Cy Grant, because he's an interesting figure, isn't he? Yeah, so I never met him. Uh, I tried to interview him, but he wasn't well, and, and his wife said it wasn't a good time. Um, so Cy Grant was from British Guiana, now, now the Republic of uh, Guyana, and he volunteered at the same time. He was a uh, navigator in a Lancaster. Mm-hmm. He was shot down. The aircraft was shot down on his third uh, op. So it's, it's very common to be shot down early. Inexperienced crews couldn't stay in the bomber stream as, 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 as tightly and effectively as, as more experienced crews. And that meant you were an outlier and you were likely to get attacked by night fighters. So he was shot down. He successfully parachuted out. By the way, that's a one in 10 chance statistically of parachuting out of Lancaster and surviving. So he survived. He landed in, in Holland. He was handed over to the German authorities by a farmer. Um, there being not many other options. And yeah. he was taken to uh, Stalag Luft. I don't get it wrong. I think it was three. Um, there was a black prisoner in Stalag Luft one as well. Uh, when right. he arrived there, it's very interesting. When he arrived there, uh, so he was terrified for his, you know, he thought he'd be executed, but he yeah. wasn't. He was taken there. And he was met by the camp commandant, um, uh, von Lindeiner, if I'm not wrong, who said, where are you from? 
He said, I'm from British Guiana. I said, wonderful, I've been there. And no. became, yes, and then turned to a German guard and says, now you look after this man and make sure he's okay. Wow, how lucky was he? He was very lucky. And the only problems he had in the camp were with, with an American flyer who, who kept calling him the N-word, who couldn't deal with the, the concept of a black officer. The more you learn about America during the Second World War, you can see that the latter might happen. But the former, you'd, you'd, you'd expect to... You know, a, a, a German to be uh, hostile, at least. I mean, that's fa- that's absolutely fascinating, isn't it, James? Yeah, amazing. Absolutely. He, amazing. he was rescued by the Red Army, by the way. Right. So Red <laughs> Army tanks burst through the fence in 1945 and released the prisoners. And Saigran said that there were female tank riders. Wow. Um, yeah, well, there were. Female tank- and he said they, they oozed violence. <laughs> that's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> That's yeah. fascinating. Well, I mean, to be fair, if you're if you're um, in the Red Army and you're female and you're a tank commander and you've got that far, I guess you would. Yeah, yeah, and there are, a lot of them would have lost their their husbands, I suspect, earlier yeah, on, yeah. and they're out for revenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. Wow! God. So suddenly they find. I mean, what a sort of juxtaposition from going from Guyana to Britain to flying over Germany to being shot down to being picked up by the Red Army. That's right. He was on the long march, by the way, as well. Right. Wow. So he, he described the, so this was the march where they moved the prisoners yeah, and, yeah. and others across Germany in the winter. So he was on this winter march. He said that they came across a unit of SS men digging in for a last stand. He said they were big, well-fed, beefy types. And he looked at them and thought they wouldn't have much longer. Yeah, that's amazing. God. So who, how many did you manage to speak to before it was too late? I spoke to three aircrew. Um, Johnny Banks was another one. Um, he, very good friend of my great uncle. And he was a mosquito uh, navigator slash uh, weapons officer. I'm not sure what the phraseology was then, but I know they call them weps these days. Um, and um, he did a full tour as well over Germany as, as a navigator. So went back to Jamaica retired there passed away sadly about um well about 20 years now and uh he talked about uh a lot of incidents because the 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 mosquitoes were often pathfinder aircraft or they would drop the initial bombs before the pathfinder force was formally light bomber force weren't they that's right light bombers and they dropped those initial bombs on target and his pilot liked to fly around and watch the raid and he and um <laughs> he, he didn't like that. He didn't like that. Um, uh, there was one occasion when they were flying back and they had um, a bomb that had hung up on the aircraft, so it just wouldn't release, and they couldn't land with it. So he was instructed to bail out over the North Sea close to the British coast, and he said, I'm not doing that, and um, I'm staying with you. And then as they descended, it turned out it was ice. There was a problem with ice, so the ice dissipated somewhat, and then they were able to release the bomb. They had places where they could could drop them special places where they could drop them so they did that and then they landed but this is some fairly you know dicey moments as well god that is amazing i mean it, i would i would say to the pilot no we're, go- we're, we're going we're going home now yeah we're going home he's not jumping in the north into the north sea especially not as a jamaican used to warm yeah. water so uh, yeah. <laughs> but oh, Mark, you were saying that your uncle didn't experience any racism but but that plenty of others did i mean yes. you know when you were investigating this i mean how hard was it for for these these 500 or so um, Caribbean airmen in the RAF. I mean, d- did it just completely vary? Because I, th- I get the impression that there was, I mean, obviously there was racism, lots of racism at that time, but but 
it wasn't as overt as a lot of the times it was with in the U.S. Army, for example, or the U.S. Armed Forces. So there was, yeah, so there was no segregation, and it's very nuanced, and it depends again on the individual that you're talking about. So you could find people in the Air Ministry writing extremely racist correspondence about yeah. not wanting black people in the officers' mess, okay, yeah. for example. Um, but and 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 uh, Johnny Banks, um, Flight Lieutenant Johnny Banks, um, told me that the first time he entered. Um, by that point, I think he was a flight sergeant. First time he entered the mess, everybody turned their backs on him and walked away. Jesus. Wow. And then, and then the senior um, person present said, all of you, come back here now. I'll have none of this nonsense. And from that point, it was fine. So, so a lot of it had to do with leadership and the example set. Um, but once you got you know, in the mix and, and you'd, you'd flown some missions and your mm. crew trusted you, I think everything was fine. I mean, there, there were tail gunners as well. Lincoln Lynch. Mm. was a tail gunner um he was the champion gunner on his course in canada won the medal for champion gunner shot down an me 110 on his first mission his first operation um apparently he shot the engine out and then held fire while the crew bailed out for which he got a bit of flack to see what i did there (laughs) Um, (laughs) absolutely wow Gosh, I mean, it is it is interesting, isn't it? Because there are stories of men being treated extremely well, aren't there? You know, um, uh, and partly because they're officers as much as anything else. That's important. That is important because I think it, it, you know, it echoes what you said earlier. If you've made it this far, you must be worth you, you must be worth your salt, sort of thing. I suppose the basic issue is if is, is if you are a black serviceman in the UK, you don't know really what's going to happen next and how you're going in terms of how you're going to be treated. You don't know. You literally don't know what's around the corner. Or when you walk into a hotel, you don't know how you're going to be treated by the staff. They may get you a table because you're an officer. They may they may blank you. I mean, because because obviously people do then go into politics and do then go into the independence movements that that, that follow the Second World War in the Caribbean. Do you think that experience radicalized might be too strong a word? Because after all, if they're fighting to defeat Hitler, they're they're, they're headed in that direction anyway. They're not they're not defending the British Empire. They're, defe- they're, they're fighting fascism. Did people's experiences shape where they ended up politically after the war as well, do you think? I think that many of them, so many of them ended up as professionals and many, as you say, ended up in the independence movements as politicians. In fact, the prime minister of Barbados, Errol Barrow, was, was, a, was air crew. Um, uh, and, and many others, uh, Lincoln Lynch, I mentioned, became, became a, a civil rights activist in New York. So I think many of them went already... Um, convinced of the need for action. So the independence movements in, in, in the colonies were already active at that point in time. At least one was a committed communist. Others were just there, as I say, because they feared a return to slavery. So there would have been a mix of, um, of motivations. But yes, a certain percentage of them would have come back and said, either to themselves or, or, or to others, look, we've now proved our capability. We've proved our commitment. Uh, it's time for us to self-govern. And, and I think it was difficult to resist that argument at that stage. Because some of the stuff that would have been being written is, is black people are incapable of this, that, and the other. They, they, you know, they can't do maths. Can't do maths. They can't do maths. They lack the fine yeah. motor skills yeah. and all that, you know, yeah. Yeah. all that sort of bullshit that would have been packaged with it. And they've, they've basically, it, that's all been proved wrong. You know, if you're navigating lengths or flying Spitfires, it's, it's just, it's plainly a nonsense. And that confidence could come from having rejected those arguments, li- literally. Yeah, I think the confidence was there. Um, I mean, the, the Caribbean in 1939 had the high, one of the highest literacy rates in the world, higher than the UK, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So I think the confidence was already there. Um, it was more a matter of proving this to us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. As you said earlier, people then returned to the UK. The migration that follows the war 
all of this, I mean, it casts a different light on the story we tell traditionally, I think, um, about the relationship with the Caribbean and migration and, and immigration and all that, actually, is that you've got citizen participants in the UK's defence. That surely changes the picture entirely, doesn't it? It has to. I think so. And let's not forget, my, my father was a Windrush. Um, yeah. He didn't come on the Windrush, but he came on a ship at that time. Um, and people were invited to come. They were So the RAF ran a recruitment drive for, for air crew and ground crew during the war. And then following the war, the UK government ran a recruitment drive for people to come and help to rebuild Britain. Yeah. And people came with, with, with that in mind, with, in response to that request, and they expected to be welcomed into British society and they expected to be treated equally. Yeah. And a lot of the resentment that you see in black communities today is, is born of the fact that they were not welcomed and they were not treated equally. And, you know, you get the rivers of blood speech and you get other things uh, like that taking place. And so people rightly felt very, very disappointed. Uh, they're determined, and strong and, and, and focused individuals so they don't run away and go home. They yeah. stay, but they feel, you know, bitter and disappointed because of that treatment. And the lack of recognition that they've received for that service and continue to receive today, I think, is, is something that a lot of people don't quite grasp. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, because because if you're building a land fit for heroes, for instance, then you've got to include all the heroes. It's a, Absolutely. It's, it's, Absolutely. A simple, it's as simple as that, isn't it? And it's not only a question of colour. If you think about the Polish contribution, I've, I've, I've taken a look at that. I've got Polish colleagues and friends. Uh, 25% of um, forces in Western Europe, I believe, Polish. Um, uh, 20% of the RAF. 10% of the RAF during the Battle of Britain on certain days, Polish and Czech. And that at, the, at the end of the war, 1945, so uh, when are you going home then? Hmm. And they couldn't yeah. go home. They weren't allowed yeah. to go home. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Poland that they need didn't exist anymore. That's so. right. That's right. You know, it had all been carved up, hadn't it? Well, um, and, and a government hostile to anyone friendly to the West. So you're, yeah. it's yeah. D- double difficulty, isn't it? We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. How many people actually fly? It's it's. You said about four ninety, didn't you? Something yeah, like the, the number keeps increasing because the RF Museum. Yeah. I've done, done a lot of work with them. Keep finding more names. Right, when I wrote of course. The book, it was four hundred ninety-five. Yeah, four hundred ninety-five. Yeah, there was a slight challenge because they weren't classified by race, which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they were classified by origin, and we know that some of them were what you would call white Caribbean yeah, people. Right. Uh, a small, a, a relatively small number of those, because many of those would have gone earlier. Yeah. Um, but uh, so there is a mix, and then there are what you know. So, so my dad's Jamaican, my mum's British. So you know, I refer to myself as coloured. Some people don't like that phrase, but that's how I refer to myself. Uh, and in those days, people were referred to as black and coloured. And so right. there were there were a certain number of people who would have been mixed race like me. And the photographs show this: some who were you know pure African. Descent. And there were volunteers, by the way, from West Africa. There are at least 50 aircrew from West Africa. And, uh, as well as two divisions uh, in Burma. Two divisions of, of, of West African troops in Burma, as you say. Yeah. 80, 82nd, 82nd 80 and yeah. 81st, eh? That's right, yeah. Who served in the Arakan campaign. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly so, right. so, um, so, yes, a lot, a lot, a lot more than, than we realise. It's, fa- it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it is really, really interesting. But did you – I mean, when you were – Talking to these guys, and presumably you were able to look at look at other accounts and, and, and testimonies and stuff. I mean, for most people, the biggest challenge of, of flying for Bomber Command, for example, is the fact that you're doing a job which is just unbelievably perilous, and not just because of enemy action. No, because because it's congested airspace. You, you're you know people. You know it's dark. It's misty. You're expected to fly in conditions which today people wouldn't be flying. Yeah. yeah. And if you're yeah. flying into Manchester, you, you know, the aircraft itself was a threat. Oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, so, yes. you know, I think it was about a third, wasn't it? A third, a third of all losses were due to accidents yeah. and mishap yeah. and all yeah. rest of it. And then there's you know, accidents during bombing up. So even the ground crew were exposed to risk, the aircraft blowing up on, on, on the so-called tarmac. Um, well, I don't think it was tarmac at the time, but <laughs> all, yeah, all, all manner of, of risks that, that have nothing to do with, uh, with enemy action. Bombs dropping from above. And hitting aircraft yes, below yes, at yes, night, yes. yeah, yep. uh, collisions. I'm also, but I am also very struck always by the cultural um, leap. I mean, I, I remember reading the letters of an Australian guy. You know, he was a sort of son of a sheep farmer. First time he ever left his farm was to go and join the local recruitment office. Yeah. You know, the next thing he knows, he's on a ship going all the way around the world. Finally, kind of winds up in Britain. You know, landing at Greenock or something. Then he's on a train. You know, and you're in this tiny country in middle of winter, and it's about as far removed from the outback as you could possibly expect. And it's the same for someone from the Caribbean, isn't it? It's just it's such a leap. And so you've got all the challenges of, of flying operationally and, and the hazards of that. But on top of that, you've got this extra dollop, which is cultural changes, potential racism from the, your those around you. It, it, it's... It's just a, a layer again, tougher for these people, I think. These are special people. I mean, you know, my great uncle, for example, you know, I don't think I could have done what he did. 
and I know myself quite well. <laughs> so <laughs> I know what I'm saying there. Um, but um, he, um, he had never seen electricity and never seen a car before he left St. Elizabeth, the parish in Jamaica where he'd grown up. His Amazing. school was, he lived in a thatched roof hut and his school was a one room school with everybody in the same room, regardless of age. Yeah. He travels, as you say, to Europe. He becomes a navigator in what at the time was the most sophisticated piece of, of equipment available with, with radar and all manner of um, different mm -hmm. devices being added over time um, and, and then moves to the Pathfinder Force. Okay. Yeah, he deals with British society. He becomes an equal and accepted member of a crew. Um, you know, just, just astounding, astounding um, changes. In, 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 and the other change that's astounding is the acceptance so if you think about Britain in 1940 versus Britain in 1941, when these crews start to arrive, um, yeah. or the first, you know, 43, they're, they're, they're in for large numbers. And yet they're accepted, yeah. and, and they don't get much flack. And they, 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 he never bought a, a beer in, in Yorkshire, in, his pub, in any pub in Yorkshire where he served. He, <laughs> as soon as he walked into a pub, he was someone would buy a beer for him. <laughs> and that's a, just a huge cultural shift. And I find it so disappointing that we still have issues today because we've demonstrated that we can do this. We can yeah. be inclusive. We can all work together as a team. We can stand up to yep. evil. Uh, I guess for some reason we've slid backwards and we're back in a well, messy I, situation. I just couldn't agree with you more. It's just, yeah. it's such a nonsense, isn't it? It's so yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, you know, all those years ago, people were incredibly accepting. So why is it that this comparatively small minority has to ruin things and put such a spanner in the works? It's, it's just absurd. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sad. I, I think the internet has a lot to to um, answer for. To be honest, yeah, yeah. It's the, you know what what would have been a, co a conversation at a pub or a man standing on a box in um, at Speaker's Corner, um, you know, two three decades ago, is now a global viral meme, and, um, and and that's actually very very dangerous. Yeah, well, and also the simple business of actually m meeting people um, dissipates an awful lot of sort of you know these sort of fantastical anticipations people have of each other yes don't they but the internet because you have to sit in your mum's basement on your own and not meet anyone um it sort of exacerbates that that problem that you're not meeting people you're not ex experiencing them you're not getting to know them understanding them you're sitting there coming up with your wildest imaginings about well them. yes absolutely and we were talking about that the other day with relation to italy weren't we and yeah. and you know yeah. british troops they're just eye ties and they're just you know yeah other kind of worse terms uh, and they're people to be scorned and diminished. Yeah. And then they end up being billeted with some family who shower them with affection and love and, and, and all the, and they, they witness all the normal emotions times 10 that they they're used to. And, and when they finally have to go back to the front, there's tears and, you know, promises that they'll stay in touch forever. And, you know, if they survive, they become friends for life. Well, I mean, but, yeah, even, it, but even when you see fraternization in Germany after the end of the war, you know, where people pretty quickly drop the idea that all Germans are terrible and live amongst them. I mean, it's, the, yeah, it's that yeah. thing of, of, of actually seeing people and meeting people. I, I mean, it is fascinating in a way that they weren't recorded by race when they, you know, because the colour bar's been lifted, so there are more people to find inevitably. And you're going to, you know, the, the, they'll keep popping up, won't they? They'll, they'll start to, they'll appear out of the mists of history, I suppose. That's right, that's right. And the colour bar's an important point. I'm not, not sure everybody would be aware of it, but this is the official pronouncement that only British-born men of pure European descent could qualify as officers in the 
in the Her Majesty's His Majesty's um, Armed Forces, and I was dropped in um, October 1939, um, and from that point forwards, others could join. And, and it's interesting that there were moves to reestablish the color bar in 1945. In fact, before the war had actually ended, while black and colored aircrew were still airborne in opera, in combat, people in the air ministry were trying to reestablish the color bar um, and writing memos about it, which we have copies of. It's so frustrating, isn't it? Because because people like your uncle and and Cy Grant and Arthur Wint, they're, they're such pioneers, aren't they? On so many different levels, you know, they're doing their bit for. For world peace, they're they're putting their lives on the line, but they're also pioneers culturally and, and succeeding. You know, that's that's the point. So then to go backwards is so frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and and you can imagine that potentially triggering. You might have already been thinking about independence, and then suddenly you hear that this is happening. That's the final straw, isn't it? So so oh, you know what. I'm going to go back and fight for independence. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it also, obviously, that you do, there are attempts to return. It's an attempt to return to normal, isn't it? It's an attempt to to put things back as they were before the war. When you consider everything that happened socially and politically during the war, and also, actually, that after all, it turns out that you're fighting an enemy to whom racism is absolutely central to everything they're doing. To find yourself in 1945 trying to reinstate that just shows how, I mean, it shows how in the end institutions can be conservative to the point of um, uh, ridiculousness um, uh, and, and, and ignoring political gravity, that that might be happening. I mean, it's given that in India, you've had the, the direction of travel in India is, well, we've got to let Indian people be officers. Otherwise, there's no one going to fight this damn thing for us. And they're motivated in a similar way to fight for for the you know post-imperial future, defeat one empire to get the slip of another. I mean, it's amazing that the, the air ministry were doing that, but also kind of, God, I can see that, you know, the, uh, given how institutions work. Well, it's this, it's this, um, I'm not sure what the word is now, but there's, there's this moment in time, isn't it, where imperial power, although, although Britain has survived, yeah. Britain has not won the war. Okay. Yeah. The war has been won by the United States and Russia primarily, our Soviet Union. Um, Ooh. you know, Britain has survived the war. Britain has yeah. survived the war. No, this is just, this is, you know, if, if, if the United States and Soviet Union had not been engaged, there's no way that Britain would have invaded Europe driven to Berlin and defeated Nazism. It wouldn't have happened. Okay, so obviously that's heroic, absolutely, heroic, that's heroic, absolutely sacrifice, heroic sacrifice, but it's a battle of survival. And so uh, for, for someone who's a member of the, the common, or the, the, the colonialized nations of the empire, um, this is actually a wake-up call. This is this, this, this supposedly invincible global, global um, empire has suddenly been shown to be very, very fragile and has barely lasted has barely made its way through and now wants to reimpose its power on us. No, thank you very much. So I think, I think that's, there's a lot of that in there and I don't want to cause offense. Um, but you know, I, I think I could offer lots of historical examples to support my argument. So, so, <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, you know, all across West Africa, as India, as you say, very important the Caribbean people just say, and they all say it at the same time. Okay. You know what? It's it, the time has come, and many in Britain accept that at that time as well. And, well, and there isn't, there isn't, yeah. well, yeah, there's an awful lot of there's a lot of British people that don't want an empire anymore. And say it's yeah. a complete drain and waste of time, and, and anachronistic, which indeed it was. So, yeah, um, well, and the shift the shift in you know in Burma certainly the, the, those the British soldiers there aren't fighting for the British Empire. They're fighting to get home. They're fighting. Yeah. They want it over with. And they just want yeah. to go home. Yeah. And they and they they don't have perhaps the same impetus that people in fighting in Northwest Europe, that finding, finding how you motivate people with 
those different things is is tricky. This is so interesting, and also one of the I think one of the one of the interesting things about the way the history of the Second World War gets taught, and you know, it's the sort of if you're a triple D man and a sort of orange squash history of the Second World War, Britain stands alone thing. That's obviously not true. It's an imperial effort. Um, the reason Britain is able to, to hold its end up to the extent it does is because it has imperial resources. So you have to include them in the story. And global reach and all the rest of it. Yeah. Global, yeah. You, you have yeah. to include you have to include these people in the story. Otherwise, you're not telling the truth. Yeah, and, but and, I, but I think what's 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 great is that someone like your your great uncle is is completely integrated and doesn't witness any stuff uh, any racism. And yet, at the end of the war, you've got that going backwards again and it's just it's so disheartening to hear because it should have been going forward all the way it, there's no reason for any backward step yeah yeah and i think that that which i find so sort of it's it's so soul destroying it's so disheartening and and so depressing i don't um, i don't get disheartened by it i i look at the past and i take inspiration from the fact that we've gone forwards on many occasions in the past when we're not slaves on plantations at the moment. So yes, there is a backward, a retrograde step, but uh, we've come a very, very long way and, you know, we will keep fighting and keep pushing and we'll go, we'll reach where we need to get to. Yeah. Yeah. In the tradition of those airmen and servicemen who came came to, to fight, to fight, for the empire they wanted rid of in in the in the forties, we will um, fly the next mission. Yeah, exactly. More sorties to do. Excellent. Well, that's oh, just been I so like fascinating. It. I like it. Really, <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, My pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening. We've been talking to Mark Johnson. What's the book called again? Caribbean Volunteers at War. There we go. It's not every day that James does the plug for the author. That's uh, (laughs) (laughs) star treatment. Right. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. We will see you all again very soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. Bye-bye.